I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew in chapter 4 this morning, and we are coming to the end of the fourth chapter of this book. And in coming to the end of chapter 4, we're coming to the end of Matthew's introduction to the life and ministry of um, Jesus the Christ. Um, in chapter 1, you may recall we were introduced to his ancestral origin. Uh, God promised, do you remember, that a savior would come from the line of Abraham, and he promised that a king would come from the line of David, and the genealogy that opens Matthew chapter 1 demonstrates that Jesus is a son of Abraham through David. And then he introduces us at the end of chapter 1 to the miraculous a physical origin, the miraculous physical birth of Jesus. He was born of a virgin mother, just as the prophet Isaiah had prophesied. As we moved into chapter 2, we saw Matthew introduce us to Jesus by uh, pointing to the geographical origins, uh, the, the key locations that were connected with his birth and the early years of his life. Again, were foretold by the Old Testament prophets. And then when you go into chapter 3, all the way up through the first part of chapter 4, uh, Matthew reports on the preparations uh, of Jesus for ministry. You might recall again that he reports, first of all, on the prophesied forerunner uh, that is fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist. Then we have Jesus' own baptism, which was something of kind of a public commissioning of him to the ministry. But before he ever got to it, remember, there's a season of testing by the devil that was further preparing Jesus for the ministry that he would, that he would partake in. And now we've come to the second half, and again, we're going to conclude uh, chapter 4, and we're introduced now to the early years of Jesus' public ministry. And what we're going to see, we've already begun to see this, but what we're going to see is that for three and a half years, that ministry had kind of a two-pronged scope to it. In verses 18 through 22, where we were last time, there's a call of four men to leave their occupations and follow him into full-time vocational ministry. They had been fishers uh, by, by means of their occupation. Now he's calling them to be fishers of men, to leave behind their nets and their boats and, and that business, and to serve him full-time in reaching people. You know that that group would eventually uh, reach the, the number of 12. And one object of, of the ministerial labors of Jesus would be to make a significant investment in the lives and the ministry of that small group of disciples. And even within the 12, you know that he invested in three even more. And so there's kind of this aspect of, of making a major investment into a, a small group of disciples. But those weren't the only people Jesus ministered to. Another prong of his ministry was to the masses of people. And we read about that beginning in verse 23 of this fourth chapter and for our purpose this morning, we're going to start reading there, and we're going to read right into chapter 5 and verse number 2 before we stop this morning. So notice Matthew 4, verse 23. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. 
And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those that were possessed with devils, and those that were lunatic, those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him, <clears throat> this is what I'm saying, the second prong of this, there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. When he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, and we'll pick up there, Lord willing, next time. But with these verses, we're introduced to the kind of ministry that Jesus will have with the multitudes. And we're going to be reading about that throughout the rest of the gospel. And if you go back to verse 23, it gives us an idea of the scope of his ministry when we read that he went about all Galilee. And the dimensions of Galilee are not large. Um, 25 miles about um, north to south, and then um, 20 miles or so east to west was all that that uh, geography covered. Now, we do have to remember that most travel in that day was by foot. At best, it was by donkey. And so, an itinerant ministry, even in a region that small, was still quite active. We also learned from history uh, at the time that the area was densely populated. In fact, Josephus, a first century, uh, century Jewish historian, said that Galilee was inhabited by about 200 cities or villages. So we're reading about a ministry that involved relatively broad travel in a densely populated region. And as he's going about all Galilee and he's in these 200 or so cities and villages, there's a ministry again to masses of people. And then the rest of the verse introduces us to what Jesus did in his itinerant ministry. And again, if you look at verse 23, you can see, first of all, that he taught and he did what? That he was teaching in their synagogues and he was doing what? And he's preaching the gospel. So one aspect of his ministry was this teaching and preaching ministry with the masses. And then, in addition to that, you can see secondly that he did what? Again, you just say the word. So he taught and he preached and then he healed all manner of sickness, all manner of disease. Uh, he, he performed miracles. So, so Jesus' ministry with the masses had this aspect of teaching and preaching, and it had the aspect of, of doing miracles. And I want to show you that Matthew actually had kind of these alternate themes in mind as he wrote this book. Sometimes he will, sometimes he will report on Jesus' activity in chronological order this happened this day the next day this or this week and the next week this and so on but much of the time matthew actually moves away from chronological reporting to highlighting certain themes and he actually helps us because we're going to see a phrase that he uses that is really a tip-off to that all right <laughs> look again at chapter five in these first two verses Seeing the multitudes, he went up in a mountain. When he was said, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, and all of the rest of chapter 5, chapter 6, 
In chapter 7, we have a record of what Jesus, verse 23, what he taught and preached. And because of where he did it, verse number 1, this has often been referred to as the Sermon on the what? As the Sermon on the Mount. All right? So 5, 6, and 7 is Jesus teaching and preaching. But come to chapter 7 and verse 28, because we are introduced to something of kind of a formal conclusion to each of the teaching sections in Matthew. All right? Chapter 7 and verse 28 says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. All right, we're going we're gonna to see why that's significant. But now let me just show you that, that he's finished the teaching and preaching. And in chapter 8, he comes down. You can see verse 1. He comes down from the mountain. Again, the great multitudes, that's what we're looking at. They followed him. <clears throat> and behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou can make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately... And immediately his leprosy was what? Okay? So you remember what we saw in chapter 4, verse 23? There's teaching and preaching. That's all of chapters 5, 6, and 7. And there's doing what? There's doing healings and miracles. And actually what you have in chapters 8 and 9 is 10 sample miracles. 10 different miracles that, that Jesus performed throughout chapters 8 and 9. But with chapter 10, if you'll go there, <clears throat> chapter 10, we're going to see he returns to that teaching and preaching theme. Uh, verse 1 is the gathering together of all 12 of those disciples, and we get their names. But now notice verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent forth and did what? He commanded them certain things he, he instructed them certain things and all of the rest of chapter 10 is jesus instructing those disciples now look at chapter 11 and verse 1 notice chapter 11 and verse 1 it says and it came to pass when jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples he departed to do what he departed to teach and preach in their cities. Now, don't turn back, but in chapter 7, verse 28, we read, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings. And I said it's kind of an expression to signal he's moving from teaching and preaching into recording stories. Now we have chapter 11, verse 1. Look at it again. It came to pass when Jesus had made an, an end of commanding his disciples. And and that's a signal that chapters 11 and 12 are going to be a return to recording stories of what Jesus did. All right? Now, go to chapter 13. Chapter 13, Matthew's going to return to Jesus' teaching. Again, verse 2, great multitudes were there. And verse 3, he did what? Go ahead and say it. Maybe humor me to make me think that you're actually staying with me. And he did what? And he spake. And he spake many things to them in parables. And all of chapter 13 is a record of the kingdom parables. And we know when he finished by going down. Look at down at the end of chapter 13. 
And I'm going to actually have you look at verse 53. And I know I'm repeating to try to bring us together, but chapter 7, verse 28, it came to pass when Jesus ended these things. Chapter 11, verse 1, it came to pass when Jesus made an end of commanding. Now look at chapter 13, verse 53, and it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables. Okay? And with that statement, Matthew returns to a record of stories about Jesus that continue all the way to the end of chapter 17. And chapter 18 is another teaching section. And we know that the teaching of chapter 18 has come to a conclusion by looking at chapter 19, verse 1. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. Again, the Sermon on the Mount came to pass when Jesus ended. Chapter 11, chapter 13. Now look at chapter 19, verse 1. And it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings. He departed Galilee, went to the coast of Judea, beyond Jordan, and that's a signal to the record of stories. And that's going to come all the way until chapters 24 and 25. In fact, if you just go to chapter 24, and you can see it starts by saying they went out <coughs> from Jerusalem. They departed from the temple. They go out. They're by the Mount of Olives, and they look back, and Verse 3 says, He sat upon the Mount of Olives, and his disciples came, and they said, Tell us when shall these things be? And Jesus started teaching, and the teaching of chapters 24 and 25 has been called what? We kind of have labels to these teachings. We had the Sermon on the Mount, we had the Kingdom Parables. What do we have here? We have the All of That Discourse, because that's where he was, but this is all prophetic. This is about things that would happen future to when he's talking to the disciples and things that are still future to us about his return. All of chapter 24 and 25 is the Olivet Discourse. And look at chapter 26 and verse 1. You should already anticipate when we get there what it's going to say because it's going to say, and what? And it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings. He said unto his disciples. And that signals the end of the fifth major teaching section in this book. And the rest of the book are going to, is, is going to record events surrounding the crucifixion, the trials, and the crucifixion, and then the resurrection of Christ. Now, I'm highlighting these facts now to show us that what happens in chapter 4, verse 23, all the way back there, is Matthew kind of introducing us to the two recurring themes that are going to dominate the rest of the book he said i'm going to i'm what jesus did in his public ministry was he taught and preached and in addition to that he was very active amongst the people and a lot of that activity involved his healing and so on and and i just want to show you that that what he's doing is he is grouping things his portrayal of the ministry of jesus he is grouping things often thematically and, and by using even kind of a formula type statement there to alert us to it. He's letting us know that he's doing things very purposefully thematically. He has a reason in grouping the stories the way he does. He has a reason in alternating the teaching and the stories and the teaching and the stories. All right. 
And that's going to help us at various points as we continue to study this book. Now, with that in mind, though, go back to chapter 4 and verse number 23. And really, I'm not insulting your intelligence at all, but I want to have you look at it again and, and, and see these two broad descriptions, again, with you looking at it. Again, verse 23, there is Jesus teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel. That's one aspect of his ministry. And the second aspect of his ministry is that he was doing what? He is healing all manner of sickness and manner of disease among the people. Now, out of those two activities, groups of activities, his teaching and preaching ministry and his doing miracles, all right, in particular his healing, of those two groups of activities, do you think the Bible indicates that one or the other of those is of any greater significance? Is one or the other of them a more important activity in the life of, of Jesus and his ministry? So, for instance, is healing disease more important than his teaching and preaching? Or, when we flip that and say, actually, the teaching and preaching is more important than the healing. <clears throat> and if that just seems, okay, we're, are we in seminary or are we in Sunday morning? <clears throat> right? Are we just supposed to debate this academically or is there a point to it? Let me, let me bring it into something that I think has more relevance to contemporary questions that, that we wrestle with. Okay? Is, is doing good, and I'm going to kind of keep the the healing, miracles, that kind of end of it on this side, right? So is doing good and helping people with their physical needs and ailments and so on, is doing that more important or is, is teaching and preaching and maybe even confronting people with truth? Is that more important? And I could even... Just take it one step further in terms of, of our contemporary setting today and, and ask, if you think of these two categories, which emphasis do you think is getting more priority in terms of the typical religious person of our day? If you just take kind of church-going religious people in general of our day, what is tending to get more of the emphasis? <laughs> is, it, is it being kind and doing good to your neighbors and doing good to friends in need and doing kind of, you know, charity-type work? Or is it giving attention to the proclamation of God's revealed, settled truth. Which one do you think is getting more attention in our day? Which one do you actually think that if you announce, hey, we're going to have a new emphasis, and our new emphasis is going to be, you know, let's spend our time and money and all of this in some kind of do-good-to-our-neighbors type emphasis, or... <coughs> What we're going to do is we're, going to, we're actually going to have a day we set aside and we're going to go all through our community for face-to-face -face personal evangelism. 
Okay, which one of those tends to kind of get the typical Christian, and I'm using the label, in some cases genuine Christians, but I'm just kind of using the label. I should maybe say the religious person. Which one would tend to kind of get the religious person more engaged and active? And, and maybe you think that I'm just kind of, you know, raising something to be a little provocative, and, and maybe you think we can't really conclude anything one way or another from the Lord's ministry and, and, the, and the portrayal of it here. And my answer to that would be to say one observation that we could make is that if you're talking about the two categories, the teaching and the preaching ministry is the one that is mentioned first in the overview. And when Matthew moves on from the overview to actually start recording, what does he record first? Well, chapters 5, 6, and 7 are the, what? The Sermon on the Mount. So he goes there before he ever gets to the, the, the miracles. Sometimes we can discern an emphasis by just looking at what kind of is highlighted first. That isn't always the case. We, we typically, if we're going to say, you know, should I be making a lot out of that? We'd want some other kind of confirming witness. Okay. And with that question in mind, I do want to have you turn to Mark, all right? We're here in Matthew, but turn to Mark and turn to chapter 1. And Mark chapter 1, come down to verse 32. And we're going to read from verse 32 uh, right down through verse 38. And you'll see again the dual uh, emphasis here. But notice verse 32, And at even, when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased, and them that were possessed with devils. And all the city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases, and cast out many devils, and suffered not the devils or demons, we'd say, to speak, because they knew him. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may what? That I may preach there also. And then he gives this, For therefore came I forth. He'd been doing miracles, Matthew reported on it. But when he said, let's go to the next town, when I go to the next town, my emphasis is going to be what? It's going to be preaching, because preaching is why I came. And I'm going to have you go ahead and turn to to Mark, uh, I'm sorry, to Luke chapter 4. I know we're flipping a fair amount. In this case, we're just going to read one verse. But look at Luke chapter 4. And verse 43, Luke chapter 4 and verse 43, he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also. And we have again this statement, for therefore am I what? Therefore am I sent. Now, uh, brethren, I could continue at great length in an effort to demonstrate the same truth, but... If we just listen to Jesus' own testimony, you could even say commentary, 
It's as if, if Jesus is going to comment on his own ministry, he's healing and he's preaching. But when you actually listen to him say why he came and what his own priority is, and I'm going to go from here to there because I want to do such and such, when he said, I'm going from here to there, he said, I'm going there to do what? I'm going there to teach and preach because that's why I came. He declares in his mind, his priority, that his teaching and preaching was a first-rate priority. And if you go back with me, with me now to Matthew, we're going to see that, that ongoing reports. And go ahead and go to, to chapter 7. We're going to come down there to the end of that Sermon on the Mount. Ongoing reports indicate that the miraculous works were actually intended to have a supporting role to the preaching ministry. This is how they go together. Jesus preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I've already told you to go to 7, so don't turn back. But in chapter 4, verse 17, when Jesus began to preach, he was preaching what? He was preaching what John had been preaching. It was repent for the what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus' preaching theme was repent and submit to the authority of heaven. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay? And that's really the sermon. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is about what repentance is and submission to the kingdom of God. And, and actually, if you just drop into verse number 19, I can show it at other places, but notice what he says, every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and is cast into what? is cast into the fire. <clears throat> and he's using the figure of branches. But that fire is, is, is a type of what? Jesus is literally saying, if you don't repent and submit to the kingdom of heaven, <clears throat> I'm warning you with the fire of hell as the judgment of God. And if you go to verse 21, he says, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, and many will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and thy name have cast out devils, and thy name done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So he's talking like he has the authority to tell people, you're going to hell, you're not going to heaven, and I don't care what you say about knowing me. I know what you're really like. And that sounds pretty dogmatic. That sounds pretty sober. Pretty authoritative. And look at verse 28. I know you already saw it because I was having to see the formula. Verse 28 says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were what? Astonished at his doctrine. And then, 29 for he taught them as one having authority. And with that report, again, of the people's reaction. The people's reaction was, Wah! shock, astonishment. What do you make of this? And with that report, Matthew goes into chapters 8 and 9. And remember what we said about that? Chapters 8 and 9 are 10 
miracles recorded. And just think about this now. And when we come back here, we'll, we'll, we'll follow them out and draw them out in, in our margins, at least of our Bible. But there are six occasions where Jesus healed people of physical infirmities. Like leprosy, we already saw that one, which was the most feared disease of the day. There's two occasions where Jesus cast demons out. Again, all of it by his word. There's one instance where Jesus commands winds and waves that were whipped up into a storm, and he says, be still. And even the disciples were like, what in the world? What kind of man is this? That even the winds and waves do what? Remember the word they used? The winds and waves obey him. And he actually raised a young girl from the dead. He demonstrated he had authority over physical illness. And he has authority over the spirit world of demons. And he has authority over the natural world. And he has authority over death itself. He does it all by just speaking. And the point of all of that, the point of all those miracles now, and remember, he's grouping things together, right? He's telling us he's grouping things together thematically. The point of all of that seems to elicit the response that the people did. Look at, look at chapter 9 and verse number 8. When, and this, he had just healed a man of paralysis, right? And chapter 9, verse 8 says, When the multitudes saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. And we've, we've looked at this word a couple times. In our English, the, the word power has two different Greek words in the Greek text. One of them is basically, I'm using what we think of, one of them is, is dunamis or basically dynamite, right? The power of ability. But the other is exousia. Some people have power because of their abilities. Some people have power because of their what? Their position. Exousia is talking about the power of authority. All right? This is the word that is right here. When the multitude sought, they marveled and they glorified God, which had given, I'm going to read it this way, which had given such what unto men? Which had given such authority. These two chapters of stories of his miraculous work are designed to demonstrate that Jesus had unrivaled authority. And what they do, listen, what they do is they confirm that Jesus had the right to talk the way he did. He actually threatened people with eternal damnation if they did not obey his word. Now, who has the right to do that? Well, <laughs> the man that God's given authority over physical illness and demons and the natural world and over death itself 
Now that man has the authority to say, you obey my words or you die and perish for all eternity. Look at chapter 12 and verse 28. And I want you to just see, I'm way ahead of ourselves in the text now, but look at Jesus say this. Chapter 12 and verse 28, Jesus said, if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then what? Then the kingdom of God has come with you. Look, look at what Jesus is saying. Listen, if I'm casting demons out in the power of the Holy Spirit, that's witness that I have the authority of heaven. Okay, the miracles. Here, here we're talking about two prongs of Jesus' ministry, teaching and preaching and doing miracles. And I raised the question, is one of greater significance than the other? And what Jesus is saying himself is that the miracles that he performed were not primarily about his having compassion on the sick and needy. And I don't mean by that to imply that Jesus didn't care about physical needs. I will say this, though. If these were all about compassion, then there was apparently a lot of people that Jesus didn't have compassion for. And quite frankly, if if the miracles are only about compassion, then there's some of you and I that Jesus doesn't care for. I'm saying that provocatively. Because some of us right here are what? Are sick and needy. And some of us have friends and family, dear ones to us that are not here because they are really sick and needy. Did Jesus have compassion on them? And and I'm saying that to get us thinking. That is clearly not true. And, and part of the explanation for, for why it's not true is that Jesus' compassion is, first of all, occupied with man's greatest need, which is his spiritual need. He was moved. He tells us. We're going to see it in Matthew 9. He was moved with compassion on people because he saw them as, as sheep that were scattered abroad with no what? With no shepherd. His compassion motivated him to actually, in that context, commission additional ministers to go out and do what? Preach the gospel to those needy people. The point of the miracles was not compassion. It's not denying that he has it. But the point of the miracles was not compassion. The point of the miracles was demonstration that Jesus is none other than God's own Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the King of Heaven. He is the exclusive Savior. And there became tension between the multitudes and the Lord about this very point, the point of his miracles. Go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 records the the feeding of the 5,000. And you can just see 
In John chapter 6, a great multitude followed him. They saw his miracles, which he did. They're in this mountain. And again, verse 5, Jesus lifted up his eyes, saw a great company. And Philip says, where are we going to buy bread that these may eat? And the Lord allows this whole thing to develop. And, and notice at the end of verse 10, it says the men sat down in number, about 5,000. I'm just trying to help us get oriented. And he took the loaves and the fishes of a, of a boy's lunch, and he fed all 5,000 plus. And look at verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. And in verse number 15, they determined to do what? They determined to make him their king on the spot. He's the one, overthrow Rome, let's make him king. And, and now we are going to, we're going to be back in the good times in Israel. But Jesus knew that their hearts were something far less than sincere. And we don't have the time to follow this all the way through. But I want you to come down to verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles. And that's obviously a play on words. Because they, I mean, physically, they what? They saw. Okay? He's saying, you didn't see the real significance of the miracles. And he said, you're following me because of what? Because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, my family knows I'm not exaggerating. We have a dachshund. We bought it for my wife's birthday a few years ago. And, and people love that dachshund in our house. Her name is Licorice. She's black. My wife loves black licorice, so we named her Licorice. But I am not exaggerating. Licorice's favorite person in the whole house is who? It's me. Yeah. It, there's no doubt about it. There literally is no doubt about who Licorice's favorite person is, and it's me. And the only time certain people in the house in particular can get her away from me is if they say, Licorice, do you want yum-yums? And she knows what yum-yums are. And if Priscilla ever tries to take Licorice away from me, Licorice will growl and maybe even nip at her. <clears throat> Don't take me away from Dad! But if Priscilla has a can of yum-yums... Guess, guess who Licorice will follow? That's the one time. I'm saying that because Jesus said, you guys are like this. You're following me because I fed you. You got your bellies full, and you think there's a lot more health, wealth, and prosperity to come from following me. And the rest of what happens in... John chapter 6. Do you know what this is called? It's a discourse. It's called the bread of life discourse. And he actually says in all, and you can see John 6 is a long chapter. 
because he's teaching and he's preaching to them about the true gospel. And, and he says, you don't need physical bread and you don't need physical things to drink. What you, what you actually need is you need to partake of my broken body and you need to partake of my shed blood. And they're like, eat your body and drink your blood? They could, they really, you, you can read it for yourself later. They couldn't make the exchange. He's trying to say, I'm telling you, you need to believe. I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to shed my blood and you need to believe on my broken body and shed blood. They could not make the exchange because they were so focused on the physical. And, and you can just come right down. By the time it is all done, by the time he's done preaching about their need of forgiveness and all that, look at verse number 66. I, I know I'm skipping over a lot of it, but in verse 66, from that time forward, from that, from that time, many of his disciples, and again, the Bible doesn't use quotes like we would use them, but we would say these are quote-unquote disciples. These are so-called disciples. They were superficial followers, but they were following because what? There was a trail of bread, so to speak. But he tried to teach them about what they really needed, and they, they checked out. And from that time, many of those disciples went back and did what? They walked no more with him. The miracles were intended by God as signs to call men to give careful attention to his words. In fact, look right here in verse number 30, uh, 63. Look at verse 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profits nothing. And now he's not talking about that fleshly nature in us. He's talking about if you could genuinely, if you could eat my flesh, and if you could drink my blood, it wouldn't do you anything. And by the way, there's a whole religion that teaches a priest stands over the emblems and they become the what? People think that they're eating and drinking the broken body and blood of, of Christ. And Jesus right here says, if you did that, it would profit you nothing. And where does he direct them? The words that I speak unto you they are spirit and they are life. You're going to have to relate to me on the basis of believing my words. That's where he kept directing them. And there are two particular burdens by way of application this morning that I want to, that I want to emphasize from a consideration of this introduction to teaching and preaching and doing miracles. And, and one burden that I have is just underscoring the the nobility of true biblical preaching and the nobility of being a preacher. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make all of that point by quoting from J.C. Ryle, and this is in his commentary back in Mark 1. Remember where he, he did all these miracles, but he said, I'm going to go to the next town to preach because therefore I came out. And J.C. Ryle wrote, let us give to every part of God's public worship its proper place and honor. But let us beware of placing anything above preaching. By preaching, the church of Christ was first gathered together and founded. And by preaching, it has ever been maintained in health and prosperity. By preaching, inquirers are led on. By preaching, saints are built up. By preaching, Christianity is carried to the heathen world. There are those who sneer at missionaries and mock at those who go out into the highways of our land. He's in the 1800s in England. 
And he said, there are those who sneer at those that go out into the highways of our land to preach to crowds in open air. But such persons would do well to pause and consider what they're doing. The very work which they ridicule is the work which turned the world upside down and cast heathenism to the ground. Above all, he said, is the very work which Christ himself undertook. The King of kings and Lord of lords himself was once a preacher. For three long years he went to and fro proclaiming the gospel, sometimes in a house, sometimes on the mountainside, sometimes in a Jewish synagogue, sometimes in a boat on the sea. But the great work he took up was always one and the same. He came always preaching and teaching, therefore, he says, came I forth. And I want to say to all of you young men in here, and there's a pile of you, I don't know what God has for you, and God has to do the initiating and calling. But I want to tell you something, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself, by example and by his own testimony, holds up before you the nobility of preaching. That's what he was. And you ought to say to your heavenly Father, God, if you want me to be a preacher, I'm willing to be. If you would use me in that way, I'm available and I would glad to be. Would you show me if that's what you want me to do? And we ought to, in every way that we can, in the context of our homes and in the context of our church, we ought to uphold the nobility of preaching. Because Jesus Christ himself was a preacher and he said, that's what I came forth to do. But a second burden that we must emphasize from what we've seen today, and this is really where the whole thing drives for all of us, is that Christianity is not at its core. It is not about physical and social dynamics. Christianity at its core is a matter of responding in faith and obedience to the words of God. It's not about social justice and social warfare, and, and it's not about being a good neighbor, being a good husband, being a nice grandpa, and all kinds of other things we could talk about. Giving to charity, doing charity, volunteering your time for charity, and I'm not saying be a bad grandpa, all right? <laughs> be an unkind neighbor. Don't care about anybody around you. But I'm saying that at its core, Christianity is not about doing good physically and socially. At its core, it is about responding in faith and obedience to the words of God. And what side of that issue you fall on, just even in terms of the weight of priority, really does shape what your thinking is about being a follower of Jesus Christ. The priority of Jesus was proclaiming truth, and you will never have you will never have the right viewpoint of what it means to be his follower until you're prepared to be confronted by and live by his words, his truth, his teachings. Again, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. And they are what? They are life. This is your life. You will have to believe my words to live, Jesus said. And that's not only the case with the entry into the Christian life, but that is the case with every aspect of the Christian life. Listen, you don't just kind of feel your way to Christian growth. 
drawing from this subjective experience or that opinion or somebody else's or, you know, somebody's seminary product of your own emotions or whatever it is. You don't feel your way into Christian growth. You are sanctified by truth. And his what? His words are truth. In Deuteronomy 4, uh, Deuteronomy 32, 46 and 47, Moses said unto them, Set your heart unto all the words which I testify to you this day, which ye shall command your children to observe to do. All the words of this law. For it is not a vain thing for you, because it is your life. And through this thing ye shall prolong your days in the land where you go to possess it. Set your heart on all these words. This isn't a light matter. This is your life. Your life. Old Testament and New Testament. This is your life. The very words of God. And brethren, this is Christian ministry. This is real Christian ministry. Christian ministry is proclamation of the very words of God. And absolutely, being good neighbors can help us, many occasions, get an open door for the opportunity of a relationship. But the emphasis of Christian ministry is proclaim the words that are spirit and are life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I just want to give opportunity. Maybe it's, maybe it's even just to say, thank you, Lord, for the one who ministered those words to me and thank you for your using those words and, and you can look back and you can think of when the words just absolutely captured you. And you just say thank you, Lord, for the life that you've given to me through those words. Maybe there is an adjustment that needs to happen now. Maybe you've just been, again, kind of feeling your way. Maybe not in bad settings, but, but the focus of your attention now, even Christian growth, has not been, I need to know those words. I need to live by those words. I need to believe those words. Those words are my life. They, they haven't had that priority. Maybe there needs to be an adjustment. And then even think about ministry. Really, when's the last time you opened your mouth and proclaimed the only words there are that are spirit in life? Maybe you've thought of doing a lot of good things and maybe you've done a lot of good things. But on purpose, open your mouth to proclaim the words that are life. That's, that's the essence of Christian ministry. And maybe there's some men that have never just told the Lord, if you, if you say, leave behind everything else and follow me and I'll make you a fisherman, maybe you've never told him, but you'll tell him now. It would be my privilege if you did that. For me to serve you in that way.
Our Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you that we, of all people that really have ever lived anywhere on the face of the earth, we, we believe we can say without exaggeration that we have been favored with the most opportunity to know these words, the words that are life, that are life-changing by the power of your Spirit. And Lord, we do. We do. We, we marvel. We think, of, we think of brethren even a couple hundred years ago that didn't have what we have. We think of people on the earth today that don't have what we have. And we know that we don't have it because we're, we're better than anyone somehow. And your, your wisdom and your plan, we, we have such unique light and such unique opportunity and we thank you for it and Lord in many cases we have to ask you to forgive us for not taking full advantage of what we've been so blessed by and we pray that the fruit of this in multiple ministries perhaps in our hearts but one fruit of, of the emphasis today would be our commitment to knowing but then even to proclaiming the words that give life. And would you be pleased to allow the ministry of those words as we give it to others to be life-changing and let us see you do that work. Our brother led us in reading earlier about people's faith standing not in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Lord, as we proclaim your words, may you allow us to see people know a saving faith and a sanctifying faith that is grounded in your words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's turn in our hymn